Hello and welcome to the Spike Podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and I'm delighted to be joined this week by GB News' Andrew Doyle. Hello. And The Telegraph's Stephen Edgington. Hello. Coming up on today's show, we'll be discussing Islamism and Islamophobia, the transgender cat killer, and how the British Army went woke. If you're not already subscribed to the channel, please make sure you click subscribe and click the bell as well, and that way you'll never miss an episode. Incredibly, Lee Anderson is still one of the biggest stories in the news right now. SW1 has been obsessing over his comments about Sadiq Khan. I mean, let's refresh ourselves a bit about what he said. We've got a very cowardly Khan um, running London. He's, uh, he seems to be letting the, uh, not only the Jewish population down, but the old population of London and Britain as a whole. And I heard the comments here, I heard the comments earlier he was making about Suella some of the comments she made earlier this week. And I don't actually believe that these Islamists have got control of our country. But what I do believe is they've got control of Khan and they've got control of London and they've got control of Storm as well. So, Andrew, for, for saying this, he's been kicked out of the Tory party. Maybe fair enough. Clumsy, not very nice comments. But he's also been the subject of the news for the past week or so. And he's even had a complaint lodged against him with the police for hate speech. Yeah, Lee Anderson himself has said that he spoke in a clumsy way, which you often do when you're live on TV. And it's very easy to take a, a section out and sort of exploit it in that way. Um, and in that respect, that wasn't helpful. Um, but he didn't uh, make any comment about Sadiq Khan relating to his religion. That's not true. He was talking about, he. I, I, I believe him when he says that he would have said this about anyone, irrespective of the religion who the mayor happened to be. And he said that he included uh, Keir Starmer, actually, in his comments. Right, well, the there, same we, thing. there we go. Um but this is the problem, isn't it? When people express views stridently about a very sensitive issue, then all hell breaks loose. And often people do run screaming to the police as well when there's absolutely no need to. I don't think the police have any business to uh, to be uh, monitoring or auditing the way that we speak about these issues. It's not right. And of course, what happens is when, when commentators get involved with this kind of delicate issue uh, and attack people like Lee Anderson, what they're effectively doing is sending out a message to say no one should speak about this, even though it matters to all of us, we shouldn't speak about it. We had Frankie Boyle the other day putting out a tweet saying, when I hear the phrase Islamist, I know it's just going to be a rant by some racist. I'm paraphrasing there, but he was yeah. basically saying, if you use the term Islamist, you are a racist. And of course, no one wants to be branded a racist. So no one wants to talk about it anymore. What Frankie Boyle essentially is doing there is throwing gay people under the bus, women under the bus, um, Muslims who are within that community who are who are marginalised in that way. He's, uh, what about Jews as mm. well? You know, um, Islamism, as opposed to Islam, is extremist, radical, fundamentalist Islam that believes in Sharia law and uh, the application of such law through uh, authoritarian means. So why are people who claim to be on the left, like Frankie Boyle, standing up for that? That's, that strikes me as absolutely incredible. So can we have a conversation yeah. about this, please? And it does seem to be that people are, it's not even that we're not even have a, having a conversation about it. We can't even say the word, the, the I word, Islamism. I mean, there's been this strange... Um, you know, since since last week, since Lindsay Hoyle said there are all these threats uh, yes. against Parliament, frightening threats, he said, uh, that forced him to change, you know, the order of business, essentially. Uh, no one's been able to say what those threats are. You know, there's been all this additional security money given to MPs, £31 million announced by the Home Secretary. He wouldn't say what for. He said MPs are being intimidated. 
But who, who are they being we, intimidated We all by? know there's a problem. Can I just say with that Frankie Boyle thing, my colleague Josh Howey, who's a comedian, challenged him and said, why don't you post a picture of the Prophet Muhammad then? If there's no problem yeah. with Islamism in this country, you won't have a problem <laughs> with doing that. Unsurprisingly, Frankie Boyle didn't respond to that because we all know there's a problem. If the Speaker of the House of Commons is overriding parliamentary convention on the basis of threats mm. from Islamists, on the basis of a murder of an MP, David Amos, a while ago, that horrific murder by an ISIS sympathiser, then even though these people are in a minority, these fanatics, they wield huge power if they can upend our democratic process. Yeah. And and see, so why do you think they just, even though it affects them personally, MPs still can't name the problem? Well, because I think the fear of being called racist is greater than the fear of the mob mm. that are harassing them on the street on an almost daily basis. Yeah. And it's fascinating to watch people like... Um, Annalise Dodds and um, uh, various Labour MPs who are coming out completely in favour of Gaza and supporting the sort of people outside Parliament massively in terms of their tweets and everything that they're saying, and yet they still get abused and harassed for being somehow kind of pro-Israel or whatever. So you can't win with these people. You can't negotiate with these people. There seems to be a massive amount of extremism, as you say, and it's fascinating that we don't talk about David Amos anymore. Mm. And this whole situation it seems to me is incredibly novel and unprecedented in terms of threats to parliament i did an interview with the telegraph recently with the historian robert toombs and mm. i asked when was the last time something like this had happened where parliament had actually been cowed by a religious mob outside and he said well probably the last time parliament was cowed in this way by a sort of rioting a mob and mobs and so on was in 1832 when they passed the Reform Act. And before that, in terms of religious fundamentalists in Britain um, impacting our politics and the way that these Islamists are today, um, he was talking about things like the Guy Fawkes plot. Yeah. And this, he basically said that this situation we have now, um, we haven't seen since the 17th century in terms of religion impacting our politics. Just look at the Rochdale by-election, mm. where the main issue there seems to be Gaza, a foreign war, has nothing to do with domestic politics in Britain. And then, you, as you say, you, you mentioned really, I think, again, completely novel situation where Lee Anderson is being complained to the police around his comments. And listen, I think his com comments were clumsy. I don't think Sadiq Khan is um, in the pockets of Islamists because yeah. he is so pro-LGBT and woke <laughs> that that just can't be the case. Yeah. You could argue, I think there's, you could make a strong argument that Khan, um, obviously, uh, you know, he's not saying enough about the issues of Islamic extremism and so on, and he's allowed these protests to happen. I know that's not technically in his authority and so on, but but he's not he's obviously not controlled by Islamists. But at the same time, members of parliament should be able to express their views without being investigated by the police, certainly legitimate views that I know many, many people in the country would agree with. So this whole situation seems to, when you put it in its historical context, yeah. it's yeah. absolutely terrifying. I wonder whether that conflict between the LGBTQIA plus movement and radical Islamism is, is going to be the thing, the turning point, because it's going to have to uh, happen at some point. We saw a bit of it, didn't we, at a pro-Palestine march where someone tried to fly the Progress Pride flag yeah. and was swiftly dispatched by protesters who were there, because Islamists hate gay people, right? So you can't... I know we've had the Queers for Palestine movement and all the rest of it. Chickens the, for KFC. Chickens for KFC. But the absurdity of it is going to have to come to a head. It's really interesting what you say about the historical precedent. There isn't really anything like this where Parliament and the figures of authority are changing their policy. I mean, James the First, when it came to the gunpowder plot, he had reason to be scared of assassination after that and apparently used to sleep with pillows against his body because he was worried that he thought assass assassins might stab them instead. 
but they didn't upend the 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 constitution as a result of it. Mm. It's it's interesting that now, the, I mean, the fear is real, and I I have sympathy for the fear, and I have sympathy for Lindsay Hoyle saying he doesn't want to see anyone in the house murdered. I mean, who wouldn't sympathise with that? But we didn't even talk about it when David Amos died. Yeah, it took a couple of weeks before we found out the motivations of the killer. It could have been anyone. And instead, they had endless debates in Parliament about the need to crack down on mean tweets, which had absolutely nothing to do with the problem. The problem was radical Islamism. Yeah. And they couldn't say it. And it's not just, you know, David Amos as well. It's Mike Freer. Yes. Uh, recently said he's you know, going to stand down at the next election because he's had been getting death threats for years from Islamists because of his views on Israel. We had the Labour MP Stephen Timms was stabbed by an Islamist in 2010. We had an Islamist attack on Westminster uh, when PC Keith Palmer was stabbed in 2017. We had Islamists try to uh, try to essentially invade Downing Street. One had planned to decapitate Theresa May. So I, I agree. You know this this threat is real, but it's also strange that I, I I kind of there is a part of me that thinks are they actually genuinely just more worried about being seen as racist? I think that that for many of them plays a bigger role if anything. There's that famous tweet, isn't there, where it's like you know, if 50 million people die in a, in a mm. bomb or, you know, a nuclear explosion from an Islamic extremism, the, the one thing we should be concerned about is the rise of the far right. And I think that <laughs> yeah. that, that is yeah. kind of quite pertinent. And it's not just threats to our democracy as well and threats on MPs, but actually members of the public as well from, yeah. from Islamists. Let's not forget just a few years ago, the Manchester Arena bombing. If this has happened in the 1920s, this would have been the story of the decade. The thing that you just saw a load of dozens of children being murdered by uh, a religious extremist. Mm. I mean, it's just, it just seems so bizarre that, as you say, that they're more concerned about um, being called racist than the very real threats posed by these awful and terrorists. Even on the night. I mean, yeah. the, the, the security didn't, didn't approach the man with the rucksack because they exactly. were worried they'd be called racist. And then the question arises, I don't know what you think about this because I've been thinking about this and trying to wrangle with it, is what do we actually do on a practical level? I'm thinking if politicians need more security, we should get more security. But there's a broader problem, isn't there, of, of kowtowing mm. uh, generally to the demands of mobs who may not be violent Islamists, uh, but they are on a, on a, a, a how would you put it? They're on a spectrum insofar as if you take, take what happened at the Batley Grammar School, you know, you had the man is still in hiding. The man yeah. who showed the images of the Prophet Muhammad from Charlie Hebdo in that classroom, in a, in a lesson on free speech, it's not like it wasn't relevant, is still in hiding three years later. Again, I would put it to Frankie Boyle, if there's no problem with Islamism in the country, would he mind sitting down with that man and telling yeah. him that? Because I don't think he'll agree. But then how do you actually... We placated that mob. Yeah. You know, we do it again and again. When the Lady of Heaven, the, 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 um, the, the Shia film, was issued... And there were mobs outside cinemas demanding that it not be shown. And you saw a terrified manager coming out of some multiplex cinema saying, of course, we wouldn't show this. It's too offensive. And I think once you send out a message saying we're going to count out to any religious demand whatsoever, uh, then, of course, you're going to embolden the more extreme fringe uh, within that community. But I want to ask you both because I don't know the answer to this. How do you on a practical level deal with the fact that the, the threat is real, that Samuel Paty did get beheaded on the streets of Paris? That guy is in hiding. You know, Charlie Hebdo cartoonist did get massacred. They, Salman Rushdie did get stabbed almost to death yeah. in New York. So how do you then actually do something when to put yourself out there, to make a, a criticism, you paint a target on your back? That does happen. I wonder whether when it was with Charlie Hebdo, if every news outlet had published those cartoons and spread the risk, Rather than leaving just one or two, I know Spike published it. Yeah, 
But but why leave the risk to just one or two individuals? Similarly with Parliament, couldn't there be a concerted front about, no, we don't accept this, we don't count out to terrorism under any circumstances and spread the risk? Is that the I way think, to do it? I think so, because, ter- you know, you send the message that terrorism won't work. If you refuse to be terrorised, then, you know, that, that sends the correct message. There's safety in numbers, as you suggest. I do think that 90% of the problem, you know, is liberal cowardice, essentially. I think that, that has allowed... Because it's actually not just violent threats that are allowing things to be shut down. It's just, a lot of the time, it's just complaints, noisy complaints. So threat. let's start with those, so maybe. Let's, let's absolutely stand up to that. Because I get know. the cowardice, actually. Because, you know, they, like I say, they do carry this stuff out. Mm. But why not stand up for those other things that, that we could be doing on a daily basis, right? The liberal values that underpin our society, in other words. It's interesting. I do a fair amount of reporting for The Telegraph. And it's it's... I do a lot of stuff in the civil service and maybe we'll get on later yeah. to some of those stories. But one of the stories I did recently was about um, the World Hijab Day. And civil servants in the Home Office, specifically asylum seeker processors, were sent an email from a Home Office group called the Islamic Network, Home Office Islamic Network. Now, why that network exists in the first place, I don't know. But they sent an email basically saying, you know, World Hijab Day is brilliant and there's no problems with the hijab. Women aren't forced to wear the hijab. Um, and then there was one tiny sentence at the bottom. They, they had five examples of people in the Home Office who wore the hijab and said they had brilliant, brilliant experiences and so on. And there was some sentence at the very bottom of the email that said something like, we recognise that not all experiences have been positive. Now... <laughs> That's the, an understatement the of the people, year, these, isn't it? The people who were sent this email have to deal with asylum applications from some women who are threatened with lashes and so on in Iran if they don't wear the hijab. And I remember when I was writing this story, there was something in the back of my mind, some, some fear that I don't normally get um, when I'm doing my reporting because it was about Islam, frankly, mm. and because it was about this subject, which is so touchy and difficult to, to do as a journalist. Yeah. Um, it just seemed to me quite interesting that I had that response, just even though, you know, even though um, I'm not of that persuasion, I don't want to be a coward and so on. But it's still, there's always something there that, 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 and this is how it works, their intimidation works. Even at a paper like The Telegraph, where, you know, I think we've made some really brave decisions as a newspaper, and I'm really proud of our reporting. Um, even then, you know, we are very, very cautious when it comes to the topic of Islam. It's ingrained now. I mean, I think we failed at the time of the fatwa against Salman Rushdie. Yeah. I think that's really what happened. Instead of saying, as a country, we don't tolerate it when a foreign power threatens the life of one of our citizens and one of our finest artists for writing a book. But instead, we had endless conversations and debates about whether he brought it on himself, whether he should be funded to have police protection. I mean, just insane uh, uh, abdication of our liberal responsibilities. So I think that's what's happened is that we've let it go so often. Yeah. Now that we're just, we're, it's now really hard to unpick it. I mean, the example of the hijab is, I mean, the way you describe it, it's quite, it's funny because of, in a horrible, grim way, because of course there are women risking their lives and their liberty by throwing off the veil, burning it in the street. And then you have all these Western feminists saying it's really empowering. Yeah. I mean, the number of articles I've seen in The Guardian about how empowering a hijab is, go and live in Iran then. And you know, ch- choose not to wear it, and then you might find out. Or you might be slightly skewed or something. Yeah, exactly. You'll you'll see what happens. This week, Scarlett Blake was found guilty of some pretty gruesome crimes. He murdered a man in cold blood in Oxford, a complete stranger that he just found on the street a couple of years ago. Um, and prior to murdering this man, he live streamed himself putting a neighbor's cat in a blender. Now, clearly, this is a very disturbed individual. Uh, He claims to have multiple personality disorder. He also claims to at some times identify as a cat, but also because he identifies as a woman for the purposes of uh, in court, essentially. Uh, He is 
given treated as a woman. He was given she, her pronouns. And in the media, he's been treated as a woman. And this week, actually, we just found out that the police have recorded his crime uh, as a female committed crime. Andrew, what the hell do you make of this? Well, the crime statistics are being skewed because of this absurd new religion of gender identity ideology. And this just shows how deeply embedded it has become. When it comes to the press, I find it absolutely um, exasperating mm. that they continually refer uh, to male criminals as female when they don't have to. And this is a really important point. There are suggestions. There is advice from IPSO. There is advice from Ofcom. There are no stipulations or demands. There's no legal or ethical ramifications. You can call a man a man yeah. when he's a criminal and that is a choice that you make. Now, a lot of um, uh, newspaper outlets and media outlets will say, yes, but they have to reflect the language that's used in the court proceedings, or they have to reflect the language that the police use. And while it is true that the police and the, and the judiciary are captured to the extent that they do use those terms, it is perfectly possible to report on it and say, this man committed this crime, and in court he was referred to with female pronouns. That would settle the matter and make, make it yeah. quite straightforward. They choose not to do it. I have a TV show on, a, on, a, on GB News, I will refer to male criminals as male, even if they consider themselves to be female. I'm not going to play along with their delusion. Mm. Uh, I'm not, I, I don't think that using cur uh, pronouns for courtesy really applies when it comes to sex offenders and, and sadists. Yeah. So um, the, the media just has to stop. Mm. It just has to stop lying to the public. It has to just call these men men. And the police has to have to stop uh, misreporting and misrecording uh, these crimes as, as female crimes. Otherwise, it, it does skew reality. All of a sudden, we're supposed to believe that there's been an exponential rise of female rapists and female uh, murderers. Yeah. It, it's an absolute nonsense. I've heard people talking on social media this week about how they were genuinely misled when The Guardian published an article about Blake and didn't once mention uh, that Blake was male, to the extent that Louise Tickle, who writes for The Guardian, wrote a, a letter to Kath Viner, the editor, and said... I'm not going to write for you again until you stop misleading the public. Yeah. In December, we had the BBC uh, report on Naomi Cunningham, who was uh, a, a a man who had encouraged another man to commit sexual offences against a four-year-old. And in the whole article, it didn't once mention uh, the transgender status of this individual or that this person identified as female. They just said woman and they just said she, her. So it's not, it wasn't even couched in a footnote. Yeah. Now this is misleading the public. Mm. And I think it's really um, unethical for journalists to mislead the public, particularly when they're under no obligation to do so. Yeah, and, and it's just for the benefit of some <laughs> sicko, frankly. I mean, it's interesting that in terms of the crime statistics, which this is now skewing the crime statistics, because women are, you know, so underrepresented, I guess, um, in the murderer population, a single murderer like Scarlett Blake can boost the um, number of murders by women by about 5%. You know, there's only been a few hundred female murderers over the past decade or so. So it's really crazy how this is distorting reality. I mean, Stephen, have you kind of come across this in your newsroom at The Telegraph? Yeah, it's a really interesting um, topic. And I have to say, I totally agree with Andrew, by the way. I think newspapers should call a spade a spade, call a man a man. Um, I think the problem that a lot of newspapers have is that there basically is an editorial policy that says we must use... Mm. The, the transgender person's pronouns. So it's not actually necessarily up to individual journalists how they describe someone in their stories and their copy. Yeah. Um, this will be edited by others. And I know that um, that can cause a little bit of frustration among journalists who are told, you know, that's the newspaper's policy and there's nothing we can we can do about it. Now, on the issue of, of transgender um, uh, women, i.e. men, in, going into prisons, it's another that's another 
interesting topic and I've done a bit of reporting on that. I know some um, people who work in the prison system who I've spoken to about this topic and, and they're very concerned that the Ministry of Justice has basically adopted trans activist language and mm. policies um, in terms of dealing with transgender people in prisons. And um, I think the whole situation is almost Stalinist. Like everyone has to pretend that someone's mad beliefs in this case. I mean, as you say, this chap was identifying as a cat. Why, yeah. why, why has that he, got He anywhere? meowed at the jury at one point. I mean, this—that's the level of like yeah. derangement. We're why should that with. have the same? Yeah. Why shouldn't that have the same weight as calling mm. this person a woman? In, in my mind, it, it, it doesn't. Yeah, I, I should clarify. I mean, I don't blame the journalists, the individual journalists. My criticism is directed squarely at the editors. They're the ones who've established this policy, and they're the ones who can change it. Mm. And then they're, they're under no obligation not to. There's no excuse, frankly. Uh, and I, th- I, you know, I'm glad that I work for an outlet where we don't have these ridiculous demands from on high. But every outlet should change this, I think. Uh, when it comes to the uh, the police, well, an obvious solution would be uh, to record crimes by biological sex. And then if the criminal happens to believe that they have a gender identity, something that, what, 0.1% of people do, then you could record just like you could record the criminal's religious belief. This yeah. is, after, after all, a metaphysical belief. And so you could record it as well. And then everyone's satisfied. And you could do the same in the NHS. You can do the same across the board. Uh, I don't see why this isn't implemented. It's not implemented because, as I say, uh, this is now the new state religion mm. and it has this sway. And it's not a matter of left and right, as we've seen. I mean, the, the Daily Mail does this as much as The Guardian does yeah. this. This is just isn't it, – it's the sheer power, the sheer weight of this woke movement, what I, what I call critical social justice, and, and the, the extent to which it has dominated and you can't vote it out because it didn't come about by a democratic process so we can't get rid of it. So we, I think it, it, it's on, the onus is on individual news outlets now to take a stand, but also on the police. Well, firstly, we should ditch the College of Policing who have implemented so much of this nonsense. Yeah. Um, but then the government has to take a stand against it. Why aren't they doing anything? Do you think they, you know, they the government makes a bit of noise about about something, but is the sort of blob, I guess, if you, if for want of a better word, uh, too powerful? Do they just, you know, get in the government's way? Do they, or, or is the government not that bothered? Is it the, just making noises? The thing is, I t- I tend to agree with both sides on this argument that mm. the blob, as it were, does have a huge influence, and and there are activist civil servants who are pushing this stuff within Whitehall and so on, and of course that's true. However, at the same time, ultimately, ministers could stop all of this stuff if they had the willpower yeah. and if they had the competency to do so. I just don't want to let them off the hook in mm. any way mm. for allowing this stuff to have flourished over the last 10, 15 years. And also, just very briefly on Andrew's point about ed- editors, I think that ju- newspapers like the Daily Mail or the Telegraph have done some excellent reporting on transgender issues, particularly in our comment pages, we've got some great writers who've, you know, really expose a lot of the stuff that's going on. So I think there's legitimate criticisms against all newspapers in terms of how they um, label transgender people. And, and I think editors should really consider that policy very carefully. As you say, there's perhaps, I don't know the exact uh, Ipso laws and so on, but I'm sure you're, tr- you're right that there's no ethical or legal reasons that they can't name these people as men or, or, or women. But at the same time, I think that newspapers have done a f- fantastic job in exposing so much, including the Telegraph, um, of exposing so much of what's going on inside the blob and inside uh, all of these stories. Yeah, I think they got there eventually. I, I think they, I think they dropped the ball for an awful long time. I mean, when it comes to Ipso, Ipso very cleverly frames it as a question. They say, "Have you have you used the preferred pronouns of the yeah. individual you're reporting on?" Uh, but they also say quite clearly uh, that that the reporter's job is to not mislead the public. 
that is very clearly stated mm. and that is being violated at the moment in these in these current um the current practice definitely so is diversity more important than defense i mean if you're reading some of the stories that you've been working on stephen at the telegraph i think the people in charge of our army think yes it is more important i mean one thing that caught my eye i mean there's loads that we could talk about but one th one thing i wanted to draw people's attention to in particular was this story um you broke recently about how security checks are going to be relaxed in the name of diversity because apparently it's a barrier to letting foreigners join the army if the checks are too stringent. Yeah, that's right. So I looked into a document called the Army Race Action Plan. and <laughs> Sounds fun. Well, there's, yeah, I've, <laughs> trust me, I've read hundreds of documents about this. I know all the activist language. Um, so there's lots of race action plans across the whole of government, by the way. And this is something mm. other journalists should try and look into. Wherever they see a race action plan, there's always something egregious in it. And one of the things that really stood out to me was that, as you say, they have this security checks policy where they're saying that um, security clearance levels should be challenged, that's their language, mm. in order to boost diversity among non-UK recruits in the Army Intelligence Corps and the Officer Corps. Which just seems absolutely mad. On for, you know, I think anyone can see that as as, yeah. as being a completely wrong way to look at it. We don't want these people in armed forces if they haven't gone through proper security checks. However, the way that the armed forces um, and the army has reacted to my reporting, the defence secretary said that he was going to launch a, a review into diversity policies. Well, the Conservative Party have been in charge since 2010. Yeah, all of these policies that I was investigating have been in place since June 2022. All of this stuff is on conservative ministers. And Grant Shapps can say, oh, well, I haven't been a minister long enough for me to be responsible for this. Well, it's kind of a weak excuse. Just last month in January, he made a speech where he was promoting diversity among the armed forces. He clearly doesn't have strong ideological beliefs on this mm -hmm. issue. And even more interestingly, I did a follow-up story to this where we exposed the security checks um, story. And then in response to that, the head of the army, General Sir Patrick Sanders, sent a letter that was leaked to me, to other generals saying, no, no, I support that policy. Specifically, I support the relaxing of the security checks policy. Yeah. Which I just thought, I just can't, I just, honestly, I thought it was unbelievable. Yeah. Um, he makes the argument, he, his, he claims that diversity is important for operational effectiveness. Well, I think on just on a sort of rational level, it's not. On a moral level, it, it's not. These policies, some of these policies were insane. So just to give you a couple of examples of what else we found mm. in our reporting, they said that so-called non-binary personnel, in other words, men who want to pretend that they're female or not female or not any gender, they can, men on parades can wear makeup mm. and um, ha sort of have longer hair as the, the same as females. They say that acts of remembrance on, on Armistice Day should be uh, non-religious. Of, of, so basically no Christian elements should be involved in order for that to be inclusive. Mm. On a Royal Navy ship, there was a poster that was got, that sent to me. We published the poster defining 51 of the what they call the most commonly used terms around LGBT issues. And the first term was something like, I'm not going to get this quite right, and, and I, you'll, 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 you'll understand why. LGBT I-I-Q-Q-A-A plus or something like that. Yeah. And why Royal Navy personnel or sailors should have to learn these <laughs> kind of like, the, the, what that means, I don't know. But, um, but the, and then Patrick Sanders responds to my reporting mm. by saying basically that anyone who disagrees with it, he literally said this in the letter, um, would find it incredibly offensive. He finds it incredibly offensive, my reporting. Yeah. And that most people in the armed forces also find it offensive, which is just not true. I speak to people in the army all the time. They mm. find this stuff absolutely demoralizing. People don't want to join the army because they feel that they're being incredibly anti-white male. And frankly, those are the most 
those are the majority of the people who um, the army should be looking to recruit. Historically, those are most of the people who have joined the army. And to alienate that group of people when the army has a massive recruitment crisis is completely mad. Well, yeah, I mean, you even had the case of the RAF a few years ago, you know, trying to deliberately turn down white men internally, while saying we've got too many white men. How can we boost the diversity numbers? You think you'd accept anyone who is good enough? You'd think. Yeah. Well, the problem is that the military becomes a laughing stock with this yeah. kind of stuff. People think it is absurd. On the day uh, that Putin invaded uh, Ukraine, the Ministry of Defence tweeted out about their LGBTQ coffee morning mm. uh, with a particular focus on pansexuality. <laughs> that is funny yeah. and it makes them look ridiculous. This is not how wars are won. Mm. Um, they should watch Full Metal Jacket. These people go in, they lose their individuality. They have their heads shaved. Yeah. Uh, they become killing machines. They're trained to kill, not to be kind, not to create safe spaces. This is genuinely absurd. But also I would say that the people in authority just don't understand these issues. They've been hoodwinked in the way that everyone else has been hoodwinked, which is insofar as the uh, woke activists use progressive sounding language to uh, promote regressive ideas. Mm. So, th so your complaint that you received, Stephen, from this guy saying he was offended, it's simply because he doesn't understand. He thinks that diversity, as in not being homophobic, uh, not being racist, that's a good thing, which we all agree. Yeah. But that's not what the diversity means in the context of this stuff. Uh, what it means is the implementation of effectively a new religious code. Mm. Uh, it, it means effectively seeing people through the premise of, a, of race, gender, sexuality, gender identity status, before you see them as, as human beings. It's the opposite of what they think it means. Um, I think there was a case to be made when gay people weren't allowed in the army, right? Yeah. Because, you know, that's, that's absurd. Look at Alexander the Great. He did pretty well. You know, <laughs> uh, gay people can fight. Um, once you're over that barrier, yeah. once you're over that, then you don't need to implement all this extra stuff, mm. which is about um, affirming the individual feelings and emotions of uh, some some individuals within the army. Most of most people in the army won't care about this, by the way. I know there were some um, uh, female soldiers complaining about feeling unsafe recently. It was one. Was it one? Right, exactly. So that's, yeah. what, that's what I mean. Stop pandering mm. to a few narcissists, basically, and get the army back in order. And maybe you might recruit a few more people. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you used the word killing machine, Andrew, because at least that's gender neutral. Because there we go. another thing they've been told, so they can't say words like marksman. I mean, again, you know, Overwhelmingly, the army is a male pursuit. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I don't think that, that it's not offensive to the women there. Surely they are aware of that. They're not stupid. There was one, um, um, uh, someone in the army who told me an anecdote about this issue of gender neutral language. And they said he's never seen such a bollocking given to a soldier mm. for saying the word rifleman than anything else he'd seen in the armed forces in his life from a, from an officer um, who was incredibly angry with him for for using not for not using gender neutral language. Now it's so demoralising, I imagine, for someone. You know, generally people who join the army they do it for patriotic reasons. They might do it because they've got a family tradition. Who you know, their family were in the army or something. Uh, in their town has a local tradition, or, mm. or they're doing it for pride in their nation and so on. And just to turn up every day and be berated by this constant woke language. For example, um, several people told me across the forces that they've had to do things like salute uh, by the white ensign in the Royal Navy. You've also got an LGBT pride progress flag. And for them, you know, it's like, it's not just, it is funny in a sense, but yeah. for them it's really insulting because... You know, they may have seen their friends die in the military. They're really patriotic. As I said, those are the things that are, are driving them, motivating mm. them. 
And suddenly, the, and they see the white ensign as something, a really powerful image that's actually a very, you know, patriotic image. And suddenly they're having to devote themselves in the same way or offer the same kind of respect and duty um, to this political thing, which is which half the country disagrees with. I mean, yeah. more than half, I'd yeah. say. And, oh, no, you know, absolutely. Look at what these people are willing to sacrifice. They're putting their lives on the line for the defense of the realm. You would have thought they deserve some respect. It's not something I would do. I'm a real, I'm a coward, right? <laughs> I, I, I couldn't pick up a gun and, sh- and and shoot someone. I mean, I don't know how you'd even begin to do that. This is, the, you know, but we need people who can do that. Like we need a secure military and we're not going to get it if, if we're telling them that they've got to observe these esoteric religious rituals uh, as part of their job. Thank you for listening to the Spike podcast. We're back every Friday and you can now watch us on video too. Check us out on YouTube or go via the Spiked website, which is spiked-online.com. See you next time.